Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the Hemming Brainiac List podcast, the podcast where we do things excellently. We're talking about Of Human Bondage, Chapter 15. Getting in a bit early tonight because I've got some stuff on later, so excuse the uh, early podcast. Um, Patreon.com slash the Hemingway List if you would like to contribute, support the podcast. Patreon.com slash the Hemingway List. Uh, okay, what were our discussion prompts here? What? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember. I did a bunch of fairly sarcastic discussion prompts because I didn't like yesterday's chapter. It was long, like three or four times longer than, you know, the average chapter so far. That always frustrates me. Listeners of the podcast from previous books will know that for some reason I get disproportionately annoyed when chapter lengths are too varied. You know, it was, it was a book we read a while ago where one chapter would be like literally one and a half pages and then the next chapter would be like 20 pages. And then, you know, it would go back and forth and it, that really bothered me for some reason. I don't know why. Um, anyway, this one was a bit of a longer one. It wasn't crazy long, but it was longer. And But more to the point it was so stylistically different from the rest of the book it was a huge info dump so these are my sarcastic discussion prompts was this chapter from the right book such a stark contrast style did his trigger happy editor take a day off he boasts that his editor would cut out all unnecessary language and then we had basically a chapter of unnecessary language like you could have trimmed this chapter down a lot i'm saying like 90 percent. you could have cut this chapter down i'm pretty sure discussion prompt two maybe even more sarcastic what's the worst info dump you've ever seen in a book and why was it this chapter also discussion prompt three i don't know what this chapter was about or any of who these who any of these people were please help all right Swim said the mum fishy says, Chapter 15, summary from Novel Guide. At 13, Philip goes to the king's school itself, an ancient abbey school taught by monks, reorganised in the time of King Henry VIII. It has produced many notable people and clergymen, but there are complaints that the class quality is slipping, for more merchants, fewer gentlemen are attending. The teachers have no patience with modern ideas of education and stick to Latin and Greek. Just before Philip comes there, a new headmaster is elected, Mr. Tom Perkins, who was the son of a linen draper and was a day boy when he has been there. The headmaster at King's, Mr. Perkins, upholds the traditions of the clergy and religion, Excuse me, but he is not a gentleman who comes from one of the four gentlemanly occupations, landowner, military, law or clergy. His father was a shopkeeper and no one forgets it. He is a liberal with the new ideas of education that are in vogue, modern languages, science and mathematics. Discussion prompts one and two. I think the abrupt change in tone and perspective is because we have left Philip the child and have gone on to Philip the adolescent. I see this chapter as setting the stage for Act 2, which is a propos as M was a successful playwright. Well, I hope to hell you're wrong about that change being to illustrate the change in his age because that would mean it's only going to get more tedious if if the rate if the writing style has changed to this new style for the rest of the book 
Ah, uh, Jesus. That's not a good thing. Uh, I don't think it has, though. I think it was just like he was doing... I think he was doing an info dump. I don't think anyone ever taught him never to do an info dump. And so he's done an info dump. And um, awful, awful, awful writing. But hey, you know, what can I say? Acoustic Eels says, These characters better be really dang important for me to sit through this chapter. That's all I have to say. I loved it when one of the characters that I don't care about said... He's very enthusiastic about another of the characters that I don't care about. It reminded me of Midwestern American society where I was born, raised and still live. We have a similar saying here. When you don't like something, you're allowed, you aren't allowed to say you don't like it. So instead you say, that's interesting. That's basically the meanest thing you can say about something in Midwest culture. You have plausible deniability to say that you meant it as a positive feature, but you're not actually saying anything positive about it. That's different is another option. Um, yeah, right, okay. He's very enthusiastic. You think it was one of those, okay, yeah, well, I admire your enthusiasm, type things. I am Norwegian said, oh God, I read The Hideous Strength by C.S. Lewis some months ago, or while I read about half of it before I admit that I wasn't getting anywhere any more interested in the plot, and that whole thing is filled with university politics and bickering. It's another one of those very British things that I don't like. Not that I think this book will have much of that, but I was just reminded of all those hours of reading about gentlemen huffing and puffing just like these old men did with their new teacher. J.P. Guthrie says, Finally, Mr. Perkins appears to disrupt the norm. Sounds like he'll be acting as the catalyst to shake things up, move away from the traditions that are holding these kids back from their full potential. I like to think this is the first conflict we've seen to continue to the continued theme of people limited by their environment and the people that surround them. I enjoyed the old master's reaction. Enthusiasm was ill-bred. Enthusiasm was ungentlemanly. Enthusiasm meant change. Looking forward to seeing what people... Sorry, what happens to the characters who seem so utterly dependent on their link chains with other people, position of power, societal norms and traditions. Yeah, around that time in England, there was a lot of clinging to the old ways, you know, the gentlemanly class, the um, aristocracy sort of thing. Um, so I think we're going to be seeing a bit more of that. It was kind of the theme of the times. Tom Perkins and the Seven Dwarves, says Sour Patch and Popcorn. Up until about a year before Philip got there, King's School was highly conservative, emphasising the classics and de-emphasising math. Tom Perkins was a long ago King's student and the son of a local prestigious clothing outfitter. He went to the school at King's on scholarship, presumably because of clothes kickbacks. The teachers picked on Perkins, boxed his ears and whatnot, but we aren't led to believe that he was necessarily singled out. Anyway, Perkins went on to be very successful in his studies and eventually became assistant headmaster at a few other schools. When King's forces their decrepit headmaster into retirement, Perkins rocks the interview with the higher-ups and lands the job. The teachers, the same ones who boxed his ears and such, learn of Perkins' hiring and get scared because karma's a bitch. Moreover, Perkins is more progressive, embracing math and whatnot, threatening tradition and status quo at King's. Finally, Perkins' dad's clothier's shop has since gone under because dad's business partner is a hopeless lush and a drunk and drunk it all away. 
This on top of the fact that tradesmen are seen as lowly to begin with means that Perkins comes from trash. As a result of all this, oh yeah, and his chipper, the teachers aren't looking forward to Perkins starting as headmaster. That was chapter 15 in a nutshell. Thank you, Sour Patch and Popcorn, for the nutshell summary of chapter 15. We've had two of them now, and I think that's enough, right? That actually helps heaps. And having it done twice in different words, even better. I feel like I can progress without having missed anything. Because that chapter... Like, now that you sum it up, I'm like, yeah, that is what happened. Like, I didn't really miss anything, but if I had to reflect back on it and, and recount it, I wouldn't have been able to. So it is very helpful. Fix the Blue says... Yeah, wow, that was completely different tone. Was not expecting that at all. Moby Dick is the worst info dump I've ever seen. Love the first chapters and then just chapter after chapter of, well, I don't even really know. Yeah, I've heard Moby Dick is just um, like 5% plot, 95% filler. Uh, chapter 3, what happened in this chapter? I don't know either, and thanks to everyone whose concentration was greater than mine. To be fair, it's the middle of the night and I'm under a belter of a thunderstorm. Thor is also displeased with this chapter. Haha, <laughs> I need sleep. Well, I hope you got your sleep. You're probably still sleeping because I can see you only made that comment five hours ago, according to Reddit. So, um, uh, sleep tight? <laughs> I don't really know where I was going with that. Okay, let's read chapter 16 and hope to Thor. Hope to Thor a thunderstorm. That it's better than the previous one. Chapter 16 goes like this. A year passed. And when Philip came to the school, the old masters were all in their places. But a good many changes had taken place, notwithstanding their stubborn resistance. Nonetheless, formidable because it was concealed under an apparent desire to fall in with the new head's ideas. Though the form masters still taught French to the lower school, another master had come with a degree of Doctor of Philology from the University of Heidelberg and a record of three years spent in French Lycee. Lycee? Lycee. To teach French to the upper forms and German to anyone who cared to take it up instead of Greek. Another master was engaged to teach mathematics more systematically than had been found necessary hitherto. Neither of these was ordained. This was a real revolution, and when the pair arrived, the older masters received them with distrust. A laboratory had been fitted up, army classes were instituted, and they all said the character of the school was changing, and heaven only knew what further projects Mr. Perkins turned in that untidy head of his. The school was small, as public schools go. There were not more than 200 boarders, and it was difficult for it to grow larger, for it was huddled up against the cathedral. The precincts, with the exception of a house in which some of the masters lodged, were occupied by the cathedral clergy, and there was no more space to make the school double its present size. Sorry, and there... Oh, I missed a line. And there was no more room for building. But Mr. Perkins devised an elaborate scheme by which he might obtain sufficient space to make the school double its present size. He wanted to attract boys from London... He thought it would be good for them to be thrown in contact with the Kentish lads and it would sharpen the country wits of these. 
It's, a go- it's against all our traditions, said Size, when Mr. Perkins made the suggestion to him. We've rather gone out of our way to avoid the contamination of boys from London. Oh, what nonsense, said Mr. Perkins. No one had ever told the former master, the former master before that he talked nonsense, and he was meditating on acid reply, in which perhaps he might insert a veiled reference to hosiery, hosiery when Mr. Perkins, in his imper- impetuous way, attacked him outrageously. I'm sorry I'm reading so poorly tonight. I don't know what's going on with my brain. That house in the precincts, if you'd only marry, I'd get the chapter to put one, put another couple of stories on and we'd make dormitories and studies and your wife could help you. No, actually, you know what? It's not my brain. This is just poorly written. <laughs> I'm stumbling over the words because the sentences are trashy. All right, let's continue. The elderly clergyman gasped. Why should he marry? He was 57. A man couldn't marry at 57. He couldn't start looking after a house at his time of life. He didn't want to marry. If the choice lay between that and the country living, he would much sooner resign. All he wanted now was peace and quietness. I'm not thinking of marrying, he said. Mr. Perkins looked at him with his dark, bright eyes, and if there was a twinkle in them, poor size never saw it. What a pity. Couldn't you marry to oblige me? It would help me a great deal with the dean and chapter when I suggest rebuilding your house. But Mr. Perkins' most unpopular innovation was his system of taking occasionally another man's form. He asked it as a favour, but after all it was a favour which could not be refused, and as tar otherwise Mr. Turner said, it was undignified for all parties. He gave no warning, but after morning prayers would say to one of the masters, I wonder if you'd mind taking the sixth today at eleven. We'll change over, shall we? They did not know whether this was usual at other schools, but certainly it had never been done at Turkenbury. The results were curious. Mr. Turner, who was the first victim, broke the news to his form that the headmaster would take them for Latin that day, and on the pretense that they might like to ask him a question or two, so that they should not make perfect fools of themselves, spent the last quarter of an hour of the history lesson in construing for them the passage of Livy which had been set for the day, but when he rejoined his class and looked at the paper on which Mr. Perkins had written the marks, a surprise awaited him for the two boys at the top of the form seemed to have done very ill, while others, who had never distinguished themselves before, were given full marks. If it sounds like I read all that in one big sentence, it's because it was all one big sentence, for like the last 50 seconds. When he asked Aldridge, his cleverest boy, what was the meaning of this, the answer came sullenly. Mr. Perkins never gave us any construing to do. He asked me what I knew about General Gordon. Mr. Turner looked at him in astonishment. The boys evidently felt they had been hardly used, and he could not help agreeing with their silent dissatisfaction. He could not see either what General Gordon had to do with Livy. He hazarded an inquiry afterwards. Aldridge was dreadfully put on because you asked him what he knew about General Gordon, he said to the headmaster with an attempt at a chuckle. Mr. Perkins laughed. I saw they'd got to the agrarian laws of Chius Gracchus, and I wondered if they knew anything about the agrarian troubles in Ireland, but all they knew about Ireland was that Dublin was on the Liffey. So, 
I wondered if they'd ever heard of General Gordon. Then the horrid fact was disclosed that the new head had a mania for general information. He had doubts about the utility of examinations on subjects which he had crammed for the occasion. He wanted common sense. Sires grew more worried every month. He could not get the thought out of his head that Mr. Perkins would ask him to fix a day for his marriage, and he hated the attitude the head adopted towards classical literature. There was no doubt that he was a fine scholar and he was engaged on a work which was quite in the right tradition. He was writing a treatise on the trees in Latin literature, but he talked of it flippantly as though it were a pastime of no great importance like billiards which engaged his leisure but was not to be considered with seriousness. And Squirts, the master of the middle third, grew more ill-tempered every day. It was in his form that Philip was put on entering the school. It was in his form that Philip was put on entering the school. What, what is the what happened between two chapters ago and now? Like, who would structure a sentence? It was in his form that Philip was put on entering the school. Jesus. Like, you have to read it three times before you smooth out the kinks in that sentence. Um... Sorry. The Rev. B. B. Gordon was a man by nature ill-suited to be a schoolmaster. He was impatient and choleric. With no one to call him to account, with only small boys to face him, he had long lost all power of self-control. He began his work in a rage and ended it in a passion. He was a man of middle height and of a corpulent figure. He had sandy hair, worn very short and now growing grey, and a small bristly moustache. His large face was with indistinct features and small blue eyes, was naturally red. But during his frequent attacks of anger, it grew dark and purple. His nails were bitten to the quick, for while some trembling boy was construing, he would sit at his desk shaking with the fury that consumed him and gnaw his fingers. Stories, perhaps exaggerated, were told of his violence, and two years before there had been some excitement in the school when it was heard that one father was threatening a prosecution he had boxed the ears of a boy named Walters, with a book so violently that his hearing was affected and the boy had to be taken away from the school. The boy's father lived in Turkenbury and there had been much indignation in the city. The local paper had referred to the matter, but Mr. Walters was only a brewer, so the sympathy was divided. The rest of the boys, for reasons best known to themselves, though they loathed the master, took his side in the affair, and to show their indignation that the school's business had been dealt with outside, made things as uncomfortable as they could for Walter's younger boy, who still remained. But Mr. Gordon had only escaped the country, living by the skin of his teeth, and he had never hit a boy since. The right the masters possessed to cane boys on the hand was taken away from them, and Squirts could no longer emphasise his anger by beating his desk with a cane. He never did more now than take a boy by the shoulders and shake him. He still made a naughty or refractory lad stand with one arm stretched out for anything from ten minutes to half an hour, and he was a violent, as violent as before with his tongue. No master could have been more unfitted to teach things to so shy a boy as Philip. He had come to the school with fewer terrors than he had when, he, when first he went to Mr. Watson's. He knew a good many boys who had been with him at the preparatory school. He felt more grown up and instinctively realised that among the larger numbers his deformity would be less noticeable. 
But from the first day, Mr. Gordon struck terror in his heart, and the master, quick to discern the boys who were frightened of him, seemed on that account to take a peculiar dislike to him. Philip had enjoyed his work, but now he broke, had but now he began to look upon the hours passed in school with horror. Why is the syntax suddenly all muddled up in this book? Like the um, subject of the sentence is like at the end kind of thing, or the sorry the um, I can't remember the word for it, but like saying. But now he began to look upon the hours passed in school with horror. So like you've the, the the point of the sentence is that he's looking on it with horror. But you say look upon and then the thing he's looking upon and then how he's looking upon it. It's like all broken up. So but now he began to look upon the hours passed in school with horror. You'd say but now he began to look with horror upon the hours passed in school. You know? So that you can read it, a reader can read it correctly the first time. You don't have to rearrange it in your head. Oh, frustrating. Sorry. Sorry. I'm, I was really loving this book until like two chapters ago, and now it's just like, I think the reason I'm getting frustrated is because I'm worried the writing quality has dipped hugely, and I'm worried we've got a lot of book left. Is it going to go back up? Is it going to undip? Because I don't want to read, you know, another 50 pages of this quality where my brain has to do somersaults to comprehend the sentences. All right, let's go. Let's keep going. Rather than risk an answer which might be wrong and excite a storm of abuse from the master, he would sit stupidly silent, and when it came towards his turn to stand up and construe, his, construe he grew sick and white with apprehension. His happy moments were those when Mr. Perkins took the form. He was able to gratify the passion for no general knowledge which beset the headmaster. He had read all sorts of strange books beyond his years, and often Mr. Perkins, when a question was going round the room, would stop at Philip with a smile that filled the boy with rapture and say, Now, Kerry, you tell them. The good marks he got on these occasions increased Mr. Gordon's indignation. One day it came to Philip's turn to translate, <coughs> excuse me, to translate, and the master sat there glaring at him and furiously biting his thumb. He was in a furious mood. Philip began to speak in a low voice. Don't mumble, shouted the master. Something seemed to stick in Philip's throat. Go on, go on, go on. Each time the words were screamed more loudly. The effect was to drive all he knew out of Philip's head, and he looked at the printed page vacantly. Mr. Gordon began to breathe heavily. If you don't know, why don't you say so? Do you know it or not? Did you hear all this construed last time or not? Why don't you speak? Speak, you blockhead, speak. The master seized the arms of his chair and grasped them as though to prevent himself from falling upon Philip. They knew that in past days he often used to seize boys by the throat till they almost choked. The veins in his forehead stood out and his face grew dark and threatening. He was a man insane. Philip had known the passage perfectly the day before and now he could remember nothing. I don't know it, he gasped. Why don't you know it? Let's take the words one by one. We'll soon see if you don't know it. Philip stood silent, very white, trembling a little, and his head bent down on the book. The master's breathing grew almost stertorous. The headmaster says you're clever. I don't know how he sees it. General information, he laughed savagely. I don't know what they put you in this his form for, blockhead. He was pleased with the word, and he repeated it at the top of his voice. Blockhead, blockhead, club-footed blockhead. 
That relieved him a little. He saw Philip redden suddenly. He told him to fetch the black book. Philip put down his Caesar and went silently out. The black book was a sombre volume in which the names of boys were written with their misdeeds, and when a name was down three times it meant a caning. Philip went to the headmaster's house and knocked at his study door. Mr. Perkins was seated at his table. "'May I have the black book, please, sir?' "'There it is,' answered Mr. Perkins, indicating its place by a nod of his head. "'What have you been doing that you shouldn't?' "'I don't know, sir.' Mr. Perkins gave him a quick look, but without answering, went up with his work. Philip took the book and went out. When the hour was up, a few minutes later, he brought it back. When the, when the hour was up, a few minutes later, he brought it back. "'Let me have a look at it,' said the headmaster. "'I see Mr. Gordon has black-booked you for gross impertinence. What was it?' "'I don't know, sir. Mr. Gordon said I was a club-footed blockhead.' Mr. Perkins looked at him again. He wondered whether there was sarcasm behind the boy's reply, but he was still much too shaken. His face was white and his eyes had a look of terrified distress. Mr. Perkins got up and put the book down. As he did so, he took up some photographs. A friend of mine sent me some pictures of Athens this morning, he said casually. Look here, there's Acropolis. He began explaining to Philip what he saw. The ruin grew vivid with his words. He showed him the theatre of Dionysus and explained in what order the people sat and how beyond they could see the blue Aegean, and they suddenly said, I remember Mr. Gordon used to call me a gypsy counter-jumper when I was in his form. And before Philip, his mind fixed on the photographs, had time to gather the meaning of the remark, Mr. Perkins was showing him a picture of Salamis, and with his finger, a finger of which the nail had a little black edge to it, was pointing out how the Greek ships were placed and how the Persian and how the Persian was pointing out how the Greek ships were placed and how the Persian alright that's apparently the end of that chapter and how the Persian uh, have your say about that one over at the subreddit sorry for my um, raging <laughs> sorry for the, for the reading rage um, it's just a frustrating chapter to read it was all it was like trying to unravel a knot you know, picking apart a, a big ball of yarn that's been tied together. Um, and my poor little brain can't cope. All right. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.